We all gathered here tonight to hear about the Bill 50. But before we get going, I'll just tell you a little bit about SACPA. My name is Knut Peterson, and uh, I'm a volunteer, as are all the other board members. And we function without money, except for the university gives us a su some support money-wise. So we're going to be passing the pail around tonight for a little bit of cash. And don't, remember, don't, don't forget that uh, paper money makes less noise when it drops in the bucket. <laughs> Trevor Page taught me that one. Uh, university, as I mentioned, is uh, supporting us. And the Lethbridge Public Library is uh, supporting us by not uh, charging for the room there. Partners, partners with us on the session tonight. The format of the meeting is uh, about 50 minutes of presentation by our presenter. Then we'll have uh, coffee for 10 minutes, and then there will be question period until we get kicked out of here. Hopefully there will be many. Without further ado, I'll introduce your speaker tonight, Joe Anglin. He's no stranger to Lesbit. He spoke at SACPA on Bill 46 about a year and a half ago. And uh, Joe will argue that Bill 50 is probably just another link in the several bills that's been passed regarding power lines and or, you know, uh, the ability to across people's land and whatever the power transmission lines needs to do to do the thing. Joe Anglin is uh, a president and CEO of Anglin Stewart Investment Group in uh, Wimby. He specializes in managing energy and currency traded funds. He's provided analyst, anal analysis of energy related matters to CBC Radio and CNBC Television. He's also an independent author. Uh, Joe is very well known, I think, for guiding a landowner's group, the Vesta Area Group, who successfully challenged the uh, tactics used by AltaLink and the Energy Utilities Board with respect to an application for a re regulatory approval of the 500 kV transmission line between Edmonton and Calgary although he was not directly affected by that transmission line. Uh, would you join me in uh, welcoming Joe? I'll give him a warm hand. I want to thank everybody for coming out tonight. And I want to begin my presentation by giving you a little bit of my background. Uh, I was a transmission engineer with the Bell System for 12 years. I specialized in fiber optic transmission, and I specialized actually in what's called survivability rings, which dealing with an electricity grid, we're talking about reliability. So when I got involved with this issue five years ago, I had no idea how deep this was going to take me, uh, particularly into politics and a political fight. But I was approached by my neighbors who were going to lose their homes because of a transmission line. And having been a lineman and an engineer and an engineering manager, I looked at the, what I could see of the project, and it made no sense to me. A matter of fact, I thought there was an easy resolution. The solution seemed to be so simple to me and then when I started asking questions, five years later, here I am fighting Bill 50. In the meantime, we've had government tapping my phones and getting caught red-handed, all the processes being voided as a direct result, and a number of bills passed, some in the middle of the night, to change the laws that we were relying upon to protect our rights. So I'm often accused of being against transmission lines, and I'm not. I'm absolutely 100% fighting mad 
for my democratic rights to due process of law and my neighbor's right to due process of law. And when I say that, I'm talking about equal due process. So as we get to Bill 50, there's a, there's a problem with the debate. One is the public's not in it. Two, the debate is being steered to do we want transmission lines or not want transmission lines? And that's not the debate. There's a broader debate here, and nobody's looking at it. It's like smoke and mirrors. So I'm going to talk about transmission lines because it is embedded in this bill, and it is pretty much the title of the bill as far as what they're doing here. But there's a much larger issue that affects you. And, I'm, and as I go through this presentation, I've already made up my mind. I've looked at all the evidence. I've read every transcript, every piece of data, and much of it I can recite right off the top of my head. But the fact is, I'm going to present you evidence, and I need you to make up your mind. You don't have to follow me, but I'm convinced if you look at this evidence subjectively, you'll have more questions than you'll have answers. And that's the argument I'm making, is that we need a place where we can ask those questions like a legitimate board making a decision based on us, the public, and our interest. Because one of the things that has happened over the last 10, 12 years is we had, coming through the 80s and into the 90s, a model electricity system for all of North America. Most people don't realize that. I found that out in my research. So coming up into 1996, we were the envy of North America with our electricity system. It sort of made sense because we're pretty much a energy province. So that would go hand in hand. We deregulated ele electricity, and what happened? Well, some of you may remember your electri electric bills spiked. They just took right off. In some cases, depending on where you were, what type of business you ran, you looked at a 1,000% increase. Most people didn't get that high, but that did happen in this province. And now we move forward, and we have an electricity system that is really in jeopardy for being unreliable. It's not in jeopardy for the lights going out, as you might have heard on the radio or seen on, um, in, on the, the newspaper or TV. But our reliability is, has been put at risk. So now we pay the highest rate in all of Canada. We pay one of the highest rates in all of North America. And we have a less reliable system. Nobody's asking the question, why? And what are we doing? So now we're faced with Bill 50. And being faced with Bill 50, I want to just give you some facts and give you some background so we can discuss where should we go, what should we do. And if you look at... Bill 50, the first thing you're confronted with in the press, and this is directly from AltaLink, their CEO, and I want you to focus on what's in red on the screen, because this is a, a direct quote from Scott Thorne. We're losing $3 million approximately per month because of the loss factor of the line. Now, do your math. How much would that be per year? $36 million. Not a, it's not a big math problem. And that's enough to power all of Red Deer. Now, this isn't what they're telling you in the press. And that's significant. If it were true, that would be really significant. When you actually take a look at the data, and the data that Mel Knight is relying upon right now, because if you listen to them in the news, they're saying, we've already proven the need for these transmission lines. We know we need them. So what they're telling us here is a normal transmission system. And for you people who aren't basically engineers or electricians, an electricity grid is no different than a plumbing system. None. You pressurize your plumbing system, it's only as good, it's as weak as link. Wherever that first leak appears, that's where your system starts to fail. An electric grid is the same way. You pressurize that with the amperage you put through the system, and wherever it fails, that's your weakest link. Now, a typical system has losses between 5 and 7%. In the evidence they pr provided that Mel Knight now is relying upon, 
They're saying at that point in time, and this thing was published in 2004, that the loss factors were between 10 and 15%. And this is only between Edmonton and Calgary. And that's something I want to point out to you. The problem with our electricity system right now, and it has been the problem, is not down here in Lethbridge, and it's not north of Edmonton. It is between Calgary and Edmonton. That's the weakest link. And everyone knows this in the industry. There's not, this is not debatable. But I want you to keep in that, that factor, that 5 and 7%. Because when they look at the weak link between Edmonton and Calgary, now they theorize. And this is what theory is. Because think about it how you run your home. Do you run every appliance all the time, 24 hours a day? And the answer is no. You have peak usage and you have off time usage. And there's probably 3 o'clock in the morning is when your usage is probably the lowest when you're sleeping and everything is turned off or most everything is turned off. In our province, it's just the opposite. When we heat up the grid, it's at 3 o'clock in the morning. Most people don't know that. They think it's during peak hour. Between Edmonton and Calgary, once Calgary goes to sleep, that's when those export lines open up, and that's when Wobblebum can export, and that's when they really heat up those lines between Edmonton and Calgary. That's all part of the ASO record. And what they're giving us here is a couple of scenarios, and this is strictly theory. This is telling us at what level the loss factors will be, but they're given as if this is being run 24 hours a day. And it's not. Matter of fact, when Calgary's importing power, cheap hydropower from BC or Washington State, there's hardly anything being exported. Well, actually, there's nothing being exported, theoretically. There's, we do have an export line going to Saskatchewan. But the fact is, the figures they're giving you here is a little bit misleading because these loss factors, 34% and 16%, would be based if we kept that load on for 24 hours. And we never keep that load on for 24 hours. But if you listen to some of our politicians, and I'm going to use Stelmack's words against himself, he came up with this figure of $250 million per year. Now, if you go back to the data I just gave you, the most we could come up with was $3 million a day or $36 million. Where did the $250 million come from? I don't know. I can't find it. Alberta Energy heard me say that same thing up in Peace River, and they say it's on our website. I went to, our, I went to their website. It's not there. They gave a figure of $220 million. So even that's still up over $30 million. What did they base it on? What loss factor? We don't know. Just an interesting statement. So I had a friend of mine, because I've got to keep my name out of this sometimes, write to ASO and say, what was the loss? Give me the average loss factor of the entire grid, because that's what I really need to know, the entire grid. And the loss factor for 1987, on average, was 4%. That's below the 5% that 5 to 7%. What's going on here? These are, this, is real int this is contradictory data. And this comes right from ASO. This is, this is their own engineers giving me these figures. So something I want to point out to you. If you have a leaky pipe in your house, do you replace your entire plumbing system? If you have one outlet that's shorting out, do you do replace your entire wiring system. I suppose you would if the entire system was defective. But it would make more sense to fix the one piece of the system that was defective rather than replace the entire system. So when you look at this 4% figure on the entire system, you have to have to ask yourself, is there just a segment of our grid that needs fixing? Now, one of the things that you're not hearing very much in the press anymore, but you probably did hear it, is that the lights were going to go out in Calgary if we did not build these transmission lines between Edmonton and Calgary. Anyone hear that a few years ago? It was out there in the news. I heard it, I could hear it almost every day. When you look at the evidence given under oath, 
That's not what they were saying. Calgary had plenty of generation. As a matter of fact, what most people don't realize is this province has 35% more generation than it needs. We are generation rich, saturated. Our problem is we have an antiquated grid in some spots that cannot handle all that generation. And just like any wiring in a household, it has to be up to standard. It has to be able to handle the current that you're going to put through the system. So as we go through some of these arguments that we're dealing with where the light's going to go out, the actual evidence given contradicted anything that ASO or alt actually ASO won't say it anymore. If you ask ASO directly will the lights go out in Calgary, they will not answer the question. They won't go down that path. So I'm going to give you a little background on this bill because it, it took a lot to get here. When we created deregulation, we had something called the Energy Utilities Act that created a two-step process. And the first step was to determine, do we need these things? And the second step was, if we need it, where are we going to put them? What's going to be the location? And what they did is they introduced Bill 46 after we got into this big fight with them uh, up in Rimby because the old law was absent of those red words. What the old law said is this had to be required by the industry. And we could prove it was not required by the industry. So they amended the law. And they put three little words into that, or maybe. Now we lost our argument. No longer did it have to be required by industry. It might be required. So they, by the way, they passed this one at 3 o'clock in the morning, December 17th, no, December 11th or something like that, 3 o'clock in the morning up at the ledge. Now, everyone's saying we need Bill 50. We got to do it, time is up. But Bill 46, back in 2007, gave the Alberta Utilities Commission the authority to make a decision without holding a notice, without giving notice, and without holding a hearing. It gave them the legislative authority to do that if it was necessary. Matter of fact, they wrote down in the bill if the matter was urgent, if it was for sufficient reason, they could make that decision. So the, the regulatory board, the Alberta Utilities Commission, has the ability right now, if this matter was urgent, they could just make the decision. Apparently, they don't see the urgency or they don't find a sufficient reason because we got Bill 50 that goes right around them and makes the decision. And nobody's been able to explain why. Why do we have to do this by legislation? Now, a piece of the puzzle starts to unfold right here because when I first got involved, one of the major requirements of this entire process was that the need for these lines had to be determined, particularly when we're forced to pay for it, is it required to meet us, our present and future convenience and need? This is our rights here. So the government or the industry is going to force us to pay for it. What do we get out of it? Does it meet our needs, both now and in the future? It's a good piece of legislation. And we were relying upon that, and we actually filed a court case based on that piece of legislation. We had evidence to prove what they were doing to us in RIMBY violated that one piece of legislation. So what they did in Bill 5046... They said coming into force, they amended that provision of the bill all the way back to June 1st, 2003, retroactive. They changed the law as if it never existed, and they removed that section from law. Now when you look at paying for these power lines, the requirement is if it might be needed by industry. Not, it, not that it has to be required, but it may be needed, and the public has no provision in legislation protecting its rights, but we're paying for it. These, these are important points to know. Then along came Bill 19, and I was, some of you may have seen me last year when I went around the province and spoke on this. 
And the thing that frustrated me most about Bill 19 is how many people denied what you were reading in the bill. Because the bill was quite clear. And I, I just took this right out of the Hansard. And Jack Hayden was asked, you know, is this bill about transmission lines? And he answers, no. But when you look at the definition of what this bill was for, it defined a public project, and it says it's for conduits, poles, towers, wires, conductors. I have not a clue, as a layperson or an engineer, what else you use conduits, poles, towers, wires, cables, and conductors for other than electricity. It, it just escapes me. Yet they can say, they, you make your decision what they're saying. But to me, I'm seeing people here incapable of telling the truth or admitting the truth. And now they're telling you we need these lines. And just to make sure they cover themselves on this bill, they threw out something called notwithstanding any other act or any other regulation. So nothing interferes with this regulation or this act. And what they did is they took existing law and they threw in a couple of key words to change the whole context of what was once our right. So if a power line, a pipeline, or anything came across your land, the original laws said the government had to respect the control, the restriction, and the prohibition of any kind of use. And they threw in those words, or approval. Now they changed the whole meaning of that law. No longer, did they, no longer was it just about protecting your property. It was giving them the authority just to approve anything they want. And when they throw that word, or approval, in the various sections, no longer do they protect your property from the dumping or the deposit or emission of some substance. They can approve it. Now, when I debated them on this subject, one is Jack Hayden didn't even read his own bill the day I debated him. And that's embarrassing because it tells me we have a problem. It tells me that our legislative body is not doing what they're responsible for, which is the work which is representing us to industry versus industry's need to us. I think the system's upside down here. And when you see this type of changes in legislation, the question you have to ask is why? What's going on here? And they just give, and the other thing is, this is what bothers me about some of the changes that I've seen in the last three years. Whenever we allow government to create laws, we give up certain rights. It, it's inevitable. When we as a society make rules and regulations, we give up certain rights, and we should be always suspicious of that. But we should never give government a blanket authority to have broad powers. We should always have that legislation define the powers they take and tell us where the limits of those powers are so our rights are not violated or breached. And when you read how they've doctored up some of this legislation, the powers become incredibly broad. Not only do they give themselves the power, but they make sure they include in there on any other matter. That can take in anything. Now, I'm not sure some of this actually would stand up in court if you were to challenge it. But one of the troubling aspects of this, dealing with transmission lines, is this one section in Bill 19, which was never removed. They deny it exists, but it's there. You can look it up. This is cut and paste right out of the bill. If you violate an ordinance in this city, the bylaw officer, the city council, can take you to court and enforce whatever ordinance you break. The minister has eliminated that. What the minister has done now is say, the heck with the court, the minister can file with the court as if it were judgment. I do not believe this is constitutional, and I don't believe it would stand. But until someone challenges it, this is the law. This is what I'm talking about, my argument about due process of law. I'm, I'm not looking to violate anybody's rights here. What I'm saying is, if somebody's going to charge me with violating an ordinance or some sort of enforcement order, take me in front of a real judge and prove your case. But to have the minister file it as if it were judgment of the court, I have a real problem the way that's written. The bill further went on, and, and I know they sold this thing as, you're going to have the right, we're going to notify you, we're going to consult you. That was the big sell job. 
But what was written in the bill, Section 4.4, it says it as clear as can be. The validity of this operation or regulation is not dependent on you getting notice, and it's not dependent on you getting a document. That's as clear as valve to me saying we don't have to tell you what we're going to do and we don't have to show you what we're going to do. I find this offensive. And when you add this up with the number of bills that have been passed, now all of a sudden we are up to this Bill 50. And what's going on with Bill 50? They're telling us time has run out. This is a scare tactic in my opinion. Time is going to run out. The lights are going to go off. We have a, our system is so inefficient. Now, somewhere in this big argument, what you're going to discover at the end of this, they're not removing any lines. Nowhere in the province are they removing any lines. So what's inefficient? I don't know. But what they did is, this is a broad-reaching bill that says, if the Alberta Electric System operator gives them a plan, cabinet, cabinet can make a decision. So ASO just has to give the Minister of Energy a plan. Put it in a plan what they want. And the Minister can vary the plan, and he can put any other matter in there. I'm not sure why they need a plan. It's kind of consistent with what's happening now. The minister has already come forward telling us what lines the bill is going to legislate, but you can't find a plan anywhere. There's no plan. Where's the plan? And it's, it, it's an interesting question because what the minister is telling us in this bill, and this would be Mel Knight who's sponsoring it, he's basically assigning between Edmonton and Calgary to both Altalink and ATCO to build a minimum of 2,000 megawatts of power, uh, 2,000 megawatts of capacity. What's the limit here? There's no limit in this bill. It just says you will build a line from Edmonton, Calgary, minimum 2,000 megawatts of capacity. Now, Alberta, the entire province, on average, uses about 6,500 megawatts per day. We're legislating right now 4,000 megawatts from Edmonton to just north of Lethbridge. That's not counting the 3,000 megawatt Northern Lights project. That's 7,000 megawatts. That's more than our daily use. And that's going to be camped out just north of Lethbridge. This is overkill beyond imagination. What are they going to do with all that? What are you doing down here burning up all that electricity? It's not happening. Give me a number and I'll call you. This is what the grid looks like between Edmonton and Calgary right now. The red lines are the 500 kV lines. That bottom red line goes to Cranbrook, BC. It doesn't stop anywhere in Alberta. That's an import-export line. The red line at the top of the screen goes east to west from Wobblebum to Ellerslie. And that's a twin 500 kV line circuit. The blue lines are your 240 kV circuits running north to south. Now, there's actually more blue lines in the west than there are in the central part. So what I'm showing you here is we are stronger in the west corridor than we are in the central. And if you look on the right-hand side of the screen, you'll notice there's some blue lines missing altogether. That's the weakest part of the grid right there. See, because one of our problems is if we were to have a break south of Benalto, south of Red Deer, in that west corridor, depending on the load depending on how much current we're pushing through right now, we would not have the ability to switch to the central, and of course we can't switch to the east. So depending on the load, we would end up turning down a generator if we had to had a break in that line. That would severely handicap our reliability. What they originally proposed, this is the line I fought. This is the line that my neighbors were going to lose their houses on. This was a 500 kV proposal. It's the red dotted line. They proposed to put that parallel to all those existing lines in the West Corridor. And had that broken, because of the increased capacity, 
at what level, and I, I asked this question to ASO when I was, actually I had them under on the stand under cross-examination. At what level would this shut the entire province off? Because what happens is when that line breaks, and it was interesting, the very day I asked that question, uh, I was asking that question about ice storms, tornado, lightning, you know, natural disasters. On that very day, uh, a farmer hit one tower with a tractor and knocked it into another. They said that could never happen. Now, that's an irony. Um, and we had great pictures. We brought them in later that afternoon. Um, the funny part about it, thank you. <laughs> uh, all the bearings were welded solid. Um, the farmer survived. But the interesting thing is the farmer never got charged anything because they were in the middle of this hearing dealing with this big issue. They wanted to cover this up. So we ran out there with cameras to get pictures while they ran out real quick, said, we're not going to charge you anything. They had that fixed within, within six, seven hours. It's going to be the fastest repair job I've ever seen. But it, it creates one major problem, though. At a certain load level, what happens is a system tries to switch. It tries to switch to the east or to the central, and it can't do it. There's not enough capacity there. So the minute thing that happens at a certain load level, what would happen is you would get what's called a cascading effect. Probably all three generators, four generators, however many are firing up at Wadabum, would all switch off at the same time in a panic because they're going to self-protect. That much generation shutting off that quickly would cascade the province. In other words, all the other generators would see this major fault come in. They would go into self-protect. That's what happened to Toronto in 2003 because of an inefficient grid. That's what should have been proposed. Something along this line. And everybody that testified knew this. That's all we needed to fix our grid for us all across the province. The IPCCA said we only needed a 240 kV line. The red indicates a 500. I'm not sure what size, but that would give us the balance across the Edmonton and Calgary run and that would solve our current reliability problem because our, reliab our reliability problem south of Calgary isn't there. It doesn't exist, and it doesn't exist north of Edmonton. It's only between Edmonton and Calgary, and that's our weakest link. So with 35% more capacity than we need, if we had that redundancy from the west quarter to the east quarter, that's all we would need. And I, I'm, I'm not saying that as an opinion. That was the evidence given by the IPCCA. That was the evidence given by NMAX, which I happen to agree with um, at that point in time. What we're proposing right now, and this is only partial. This isn't all of it. What we're proposing right now is a 2,000-megawatt line in the west and another 2,000-megawatt line in the east. And if you read the bill, I'm convinced what happened is they want to put a line in the west corridor, and I got a theory as to why. But when they put a proposed to put a 2,000 megawatt line there, I'm sure the engineers ran back to the Department of Energy and said, "My God, you're going to shut the province off. First microsecond hit south of Benalto, this line's going to look to switch, and it'll have nowhere to switch to. Without redundancy, you'll shut the province offline. You got to put another second 2,000 megawatt line somewhere. So basically." What we end up doing here, we got a cascading effect going the other way. We're spending more and more money because we're overbuilding the grid. So we're going from a grid that's not really all that reliable. It works. But we're fixing it to the point that we're overbuilding the grid. And that's where we get into this issue of costs. In dealing with costs, you're hearing, in, I heard on the radio, we build these lines, electricity prices are going to go down. You hear that on the radio today? It's on every radio station. And I'm hearing $14 a month, $10 a month. Um, these figures, I don't know where they're coming up with. There's one party in this you can trust. I believe this. They're called the IPCCA. It stands for Industrial Power Consumers Coalition or Consumers Co-Generators, something like that. And what they are, those are the big industries in this province, pulp mills, refineries. They formed a group called IPCCA, 
and they pay 60% of all the electricity bills in this province. They purchase over 60% of all the electricity in this province. They have the most to lose if the costs go up. They have the most to lose if the power grid shuts down. They bring in experts to testify. I tend to trust them to represent something to correlate closer to my situation as being part of the public than I do industry telling me I, they need this. So when I listen to the IPCCA, one of the things that they told us is there's a double-edged sword here, and nobody's talking about the other edge. We're talking about the one edge, which is we have to pay for these lines, but no one's talking about the market risk. And there's market risk with this. And the best way to describe this market risk is what happens when a hurricane hits the coast of Texas? Price of the gas pump right here in Lethbridge shoots that day, that moment. Now, the fact that we would have all our gas tanks and inventories fully loaded up has no bearing on the matter. The price just shot up. We would end, that's the market risk we're going to face with electricity, too. And the, and the industry knows this. California was faced with this type of market risk. They had to re-regulate the system when wholesalers manipulated the market. Now, I want to point out one thing. Some of the parties involved in manipulating the California market sit right in Calgary. TransAlta was found guilty down in the United States of manipulating the market called gaming. So it wasn't a company called Enron out of Calgary, but they're no longer there. But since Enron has collapsed, we now have fairly good evidence of what TransAlta was up to. Of course, if you look at TransAlta's balance sheet, they made 90% in three months, 180% in six months. All you have to do is follow the money, and I think that's your first hint. Now, I'm not going to say they're guilty. I'm just saying there's some pretty serious evidence there that does not show them in a positive light. But we've never had an investigation or any charges laid. But listen to the people who are looking at this. And if you... Ed Stelmack said in, on uh, September 24th, you're not going to get dinged for this. And it's only going to cost you about $8 a month. Now, this is what Ed Stelmack said. But look what he said just a few months earlier. No way of getting around it. You, the consumer, are going to pay. Which one do you think is the truth? I know which one I think is the truth. Now, they know I'm out here speaking about this, and they've actually accused me by name of fabricating my figures. So when Ed Stelmack heard about this, he says, I don't know where the, that figure has come from when we talk about how much is going to cost? See, I've been quoting a figure of $20 billion, actually north of $20 billion, and NMAX now quotes that figure. They base theirs on a different assumption than mine. I think we're going to be lucky to keep this bill under 25, and I'm going to show you why. Alberta Energy spokesperson, this is my friend Jerry. I've never met him. He, he likes me. He mentions me by name when he speaks to me. And he says, this, you know, this bill is only going to cost us $5 billion. And they don't know where I'm getting my figures from. I'm getting it right from this. This is ASO's long-term transmission system plan. These are the figures Ed Stelmack supposedly getting his. This is the pamphlet or the report Ed Stelmack is getting his figures from. And you can go right on the website or ask ASO, and they'll send you a copy. It's pretty easy. They say right in there, $14.5 billion, clear as can be, and they're even wrong when you, when you do the math. So if you look at the cost breakdown in this report, it tells you how much each segment of our society pays for this. So you can see why the Industrial Consumers Association is really, really concerned about this. They do pay 61% of all these costs. Farmers pay the least, but commercial pays a nice hefty chunk. So when you take a look at the cost that they're giving us in this report, and this is all critical infrastructure. This is what ASO has said is critical infrastructure. 
and it's right there on page 12, it comes up to over $12 billion. And if you add that to what's already underway, plus there's another th almost $4 billion, $3.7 billion of long-term plans that are sitting right there, right on the books. We're talking about $16 billion versus $14 billion. And Bill 50 gives the minister, what, they're playing a little game with words here. They're saying Bill 50 only is going to be about $5 billion. No, Bill 50 gives the minister the ability to pick any project he, so he or she so desires and says, that's it, we're going to approve it. No board hearing, nothing. So when you look at ASO's plan, the minister has the right, the ability, the legislative authority, if Bill 50 passes, to just by stroke of a pen build all this all at once if he so chooses. But the plan is to build $16 billion. Now, the last time the, the government gave us an estimate on a line, it was that all-to-link line, and they said it was going to cost $200 million. I refuted that. I argued that. I even cross-examined ASO and all-to-link on that figure. They denied it. The day the hearing changed, they upped their estimate by 300%. Went from $200 million to $600 million. At this level, we cannot afford a 300% increase. That's why I say they'll be lucky to keep it under $25 billion at the, current, at the rate that we're going. But I do not believe they can come in at $16 billion to build all these projects. I think that's significant. Our current infrastructure is worth $2.1 billion right now. So as we sit in this room, your transmission charges are based on $2.1 billion. Now, this is a bill from NMAX. This is a bill for $84, $84 a month. And take a look at what the transmission charge is. That's this person's 11%. They're paying $10 a month. Now, think about this. If we're going to increase the expenditures, the asset value from 2.1 to 20 billion, that's a tenfold increase. How is this not going to go up by tenfold? I don't have an answer for that. I, th I have the question. This is, this is the 16%, the 11% that we pay for transmission charge. How is that not going to go up by an equal proportion? And even if ASO's figures were correct, $16 billion, that's an eightfold increase. This $80 bill just doubled on the transmission charges alone. That's how I'm coming up with my figures that the bills could double. It's logical, and absent of any data, and they won't give us data, how are they coming up with $8 a month? Nobody's explaining that, and this is, this is a, these are critical questions for you because it isn't just about what you're paying for your own electric bill. Now the convenience store you go to, their bill's gone up, and every other business has gone up. Matter of fact, if you look at a commercial bill, and I'll just back up a second. This is a commercial bill. It's a small commercial shop, $70 bill a month. Most commercial businesses have a whole lot bigger bill than this. I got this from a friend of mine. He's on the commercial rate. His bill runs under $100 a month. This bill is for $69.63. Look what a commercial person pays for transmission. Now, if that goes up tenfold, I can't, I can't explain this, but I can just show you where I'm going with this. These bills are just going to skyrocket if they apply this formula correctly. And it doesn't stop there because everything in our economy goes up. Now, there's a couple of facts that people aren't aware of. When we went through that whole hearing process back in 2006 and 2007, ASO will come out here and they will tell you, we're independent, we're objective, we have no vested interest in any of these lines. That's false. Evidence on record, official transcripts under oath, they testified their senior executives had bonuses attached to approving Altalink's line and only Altalink's line. That's a vested financial interest in Altalink getting a line. 
The evidence there, and this you can go right to volume two, page 505 to 509. It's sitting right there on the part of the record. And if you want to see it, I'll send it to you. I got it. So when ASO comes out and they say we're independent, wrong. I'm sorry. You cannot have a financial interest connected to approving their line and tell me you're independent. Because when they first brought that proposal forward, the board said, geez, guys, you've got to make it look like you're looking at something else. Give us some other options. So they did. They came back. They said, okay, we've got all these other options. But they only went for the one in the, that they originally proposed. Why? Because that's where their bonuses were. I don't blame them for doing that. But I blame the system for allowing them to have bonuses attached to that. Where you have to distrust much of this industry, because this came out in the same documents, in the same testimony, Altalink executives get bonuses based on what they call capital additions. What does that mean? The more transmission lines they can build, that means the more capital they have. The more capital they have, the more revenues they can produce. Makes sense. They produce more revenues, they get more bonuses. I'm not against that, but they're spending my money. So the more of our money they spend, the more bonuses they get. Now we got a conflict of interest here. And that's really important. So can you believe ASO when they say they're looking after your interest? Or can you believe Altalink when they say they're looking after your interest, particularly if they're going to get more money if they spend more of ours. These are serious questions that have to be put in front of some sort of board or some sort of authority. Now, the other thing is, this is not about export. I know you've heard that. It's, it's all over the place because you can even ask Mill Knight. Diana McQueen did that up at the legislature, and she was quite clear. Is this about export? Absolutely not. He's clear on that. This has nothing to do with export. Except you don't have to be an engineer or, or an electrician to read this wiring schematic. This was the first proposal. The solid red line is the export line. The two, two, 240 lines going into Calgary are already full. You can't push any more power into that no matter what you do without upgrading those. And there's no provision to upgrade those right now. They've been full for years. They were just connecting red line to red line. And Alberta Energy, right on their website, this is still there, the public will not subsidize exports. And when we look at some of the original transcripts from these hearings, uh, Miller, who is no longer with the ASO, I don't know if he's been fired, forced out, or retired involuntarily, but he testified, we gave considerable weighting to export. They were thinking about it. Matter of fact, right in their own document, what they did is they buried exports. When they talk about Calgary, they buried exports into the Calgary demand. So when they talk about Calgary demanding power, they're also talking about export. That's how they fudge these figures. And they wrote in the board when they actually... Um, we're looking at this, they got to read that there were key considerations in this, in this document, which was export. Matter of fact, in the second set of hearings long after this, the line was bringing down approximately 750 megawatts of power on average. We got them on testimony testifying to that. And on average, the export capability, capability increased by 750 megawatts. Yet, Mel Knight will say this has nothing to do with exports. Yet the document that he's relying upon right now, he's saying this was decided in 2004. That's this document. It says right there, this is, it, it increases the export limits. And there's that 750 megawatt figure. So all the evidence from ASO says this is about export. Then, when you go to the board decision, the board acknowledges this is about export. And, of course, they lay this right on the line. The cost is going to be paid by who? By you. But that violates the rule that we're not supposed to subsidize export. These are the things we were arguing two, three years ago. 
These are the things that we were bringing to court before they changed the law on us. See, we felt we could do the right thing by relying upon the laws that were on the books. And we're... <laughs> I know, they changed the laws every time we found one that worked for us. They didn't want to go by that law. And it, it turned into a real Donnybrook. It just... The whole hearing process broke down because they would not follow the law. Matter of fact, just one little caveat. We made a motion. The, the law at the time... Uh, Section 29 of the transmission regs said the board must make a decision within 180 days. We made a motion to enforce that provision of their regulations. AltaLink, TransAlta, TransCanada, they all opposed our motion. Now they're here in front of you complaining time's up. They were happy to have it all drag along because the current laws at that time supported property rights and they just drug it out till those laws could be eliminated. Now they're coming in front of you in the press saying, time's up, we gotta build these now. It's really, it's an interesting argument how it's turned full circle. Now, this is where the, the IPCCA had presented evidence and the board acknowledges it. It talks about increasing the, um, the export capability and that the public would pay. But what the IPCCA is also bringing up is that it's doubly unfair because we're going to see rate increases as a result also. Aside from the increase for paying for transmission lines, we're going to be subject to manipulation of prices. And that, that's a real threat because that's a, that's a big unknown. Cal, you can't do that to California anymore, but you can do that to Alberta. And this is a risk that we just have no control over. We've given up that sort of control over our own pricing here. So it's a real market risk that's a real threat to us and to our industry. Because I will tell you, if it gets out of control, what will happen is businesses that can relocate will. They will relocate to a, a, a more stable environment. And some have come out publicly and said they would. So this isn't just about our bills. This is about our economic health. This is the main plan. And I mean this. This is, this is the plan. Because it slipped right from the lips of some of the ASO engineers. It's, whoops, let me back up. It's called the Canada Northwest California Transmission Option Study. It's authored by two members of Alberta's electric system operator, published in May 2006. This is the grand plan that Ralph Klein set up many years before that, about 2003. And what it's all about is getting power from northern Alberta all the way down to California. So how can they say this isn't about export? That line, Keep Hills to Langdon, is one of the lines in Bill 50. And they give multiple options in this report on how to get power from northern Alberta all the way down to California. And it goes on and on and on. And by the way, there's the Mattel line going right down into Great Falls, Montana. And it has nothing to do with wind power. So when Mattel says it's about wind power, I'd say they're not speaking the truth. It has nothing to do with wind power. This has everything to do with coal gen and coal and nuclear if they build nuclear up in the, the north. And it just goes on and on. There's your Pincher Creek, that southern reinforcement. Whoops. I, I mentioned to someone earlier in here, they, they were talking about, well, we got to build these power lines across because of wind power. It's got nothing to do with wind power. Will we let wind power onto the grid? Yeah, we will. Is that a factor in this plan? No. Everything is about upgrading this province for export. And it goes on and on and on. There's the mantle line again showing up in option 5A, uh, 8A and 8B. So I get frustrated when this government says this isn't about export. And what they're saying is that we need this urgently because our system is failing. It's leaking. As, and here's that $250 million quote. This one, this one is from Mel Knight. Um, we have one problem in our electrical grid. 
and it's between Edmonton and Calgary, and the problem only exists after midnight. And if they heat up that line large enough and it goes, it has a fault, it could trip some major generators offline. That would affect our reliability. We're not shut off all the lights in the province, but it would affect our reliability of our system. It needs to be balanced because whenever you have generation, you have to balance your, your transmission to generation. You can't get around that. One goes hand in hand with the other. But do we need to be ma building these mega transmission lines? That's another question. But here's the real reason why we have to build mega transmission lines. When you look at the companies that are benefiting from, look at what they're saying. If we don't build these mega transmission lines, you're going to have cheap electricity. Think about that comment. He said this. This is his quote. When you ask Transalta, this is Steve Snyder. None of these guys would meet me anymore. We, we, uh, I will tell you a funny story. I, brought, I bought a table at the Chamber of Commerce meeting up in Edmonton, and I brought in a table full of farmers. And you had to have been there to enjoy the, the comedy because, I mean, you're talking about guys with cowboy buckles, the big cowboy hats, and they put their bibs in, and they brought out a little piece of fish. And these guys were screaming. So no wonder why we can't sell beef. We don't even serve it in Alberta. And it was just going on and on and on. And, um, and we got the, from, from EPCOR, we got the, uh, the speech of the lights going out. And at the end of the meeting, he asked if there were any questions. And I jumped right up. And I asked some very significant questions. One of the questions is, if the lights are going out in the province, all the anyone in the industry who sees this has to file a report by law to the board outlining the critical problem in the infrastructure. That's, that's their responsibility. And they didn't do that. And I asked him, why haven't you done this? And he started stuttering. Because they haven't done it because there isn't really a critical threat. There, there is something that needs to be fixed, but there isn't a critical threat. So we really submarined them right there. And now they really watch for the Levester Group buying a table at these functions. Just to, we tried it at our most recent one, we got turned down. They wouldn't sell us a table. But you can see what they're saying when they're speaking what I call openly in the public. They need to build these lines to the U.S. because it's excess capacity in this province of generation. Now help me out here. If we're oversaturated with generation, why are our electricity prices so high? Why are we paying some of the highest rates? Matter of fact, um, TransCanada, who's involved in this, they want to build one of the nuclear power plants up north. The problem is the nuclear reactor is about 4,000 megawatts. And what Hal was saying here is, my God, if we build a 2,000 megawatt plant with our current export capabilities, you'd be getting free electricity. It crushed the market. I'm not so sure that's a bad thing. It's a very bad thing for his business deal. But they're very clear on this. This has nothing to do about Alberta's needs. This has everything about selling this stuff into the U.S. market. And that's why they're building this generation here. As the lawyer for Transalta said back in 2005 when he sort of whined to the board, this government promised our stockholders, you have to build these lines. That's a quote. So again, when we look at nuclear power, a lot of people in this province thinks that, think that Alberta needs nuclear power. You know what these people are looking at? It has nothing to do with Albertans or Albertans' needs. But the scare tactics are out there. What we actually need is an objective hearing where people can be put under oath and held accountable to tell them the truth so informed decisions can be made. And we're losing that. So one of the things that has to happen here, Bill 50 has not passed. Most people don't realize that yet in the industry. ASO has to file a report with the board called the needs document. And I wrote this to the board um, on October 1st. And they wrote me right back. ASO hasn't filed a new needs document. Now, this is an important piece of information. 
See, because the one needs document that Mel Knight's relying upon got struck down by the EUB. He seems to have forgotten that. And if that doesn't jog his memory, we actually went to the Court of Appeals, and what the Court of Appeals ruled was it struck down that document, too, on the basis of bias. It said the process was biased. So the document that they're saying proves the need, the Alberta Court of Appeals said, no, that's bias. We strike that down. It's an amazing thing for them to be out in the public in contempt of court, basically. And the fact that ASO has not filed a needs document and they're out there on the radio right now telling you we need these puts them in violation of the act. They're not in compliance. The law is quite clear under Section 341 of the Electric Utilities Act. It says ASO's got to file a needs identification document with the board proving the need. They haven't done that. What they're doing is waiting for Bill 50. They know they're going to railroad it through. What's, real, what's a real tale-telling sign, tell, sign here is ASO's own expert, their own economist, gave testimony speaking for Alberta Energy and the ASO. What he's saying is deregulation is not working. I think that's an important statement. Because if their own expert is saying deregulation is not working, why aren't we just stopping right now and saying, okay, forget the transmission lines. What's wrong here? What, what needs to be fixed to make it work? Or what should we do? Not the lights are going to go out, let's throw billions of dollars. That almost sounds like the banking scandal in Wall Street. The system's going to collapse, give us a trillion dollars. That's what they're doing up here in Alberta right now. The system's going to collapse. Give us $16 billion. This is really amazing. What I'm asking here is look at this evidence I gave you. Think about it. Apply this to some of the questions you have. And I'm telling you right now, Bill 50 makes this problem worse. It doesn't correct anything. What we need here is to evaluate where we want to go. We have to have a vision of where we want to be in five years, 10 years, and 20 years. And it isn't just a vision that makes it work. From that vision, we have to point ourselves in that direction. Do we want to go to renewable energies? Do we want to go to a, what's called a distributive generation grid or an internet grid? These are some of the new theories that are being thrown out there. Is that where Alberta wants to go? Because if we have a vision, then we've got to take what we are doing today and step-by-step step outline how we're going to get to that vision. What's happening here is if you go to Alberta Energy's website, they've got a plan. ASIL has a plan, but there's no vision attached to the plan, and they're not even going by their plan. If you look at what they're doing in this bill, their plan is to overbuild this system for who? It's not for you. What are your needs? You're paying for it. This is really important. What I would like you to do is to pass this information on to other people and tell them there's other evidence out here. We don't have to have a rush to build these things. We can be smarter than that. We can do what's right for us. And if we're going to allow more generation to be built, and by the way, there's a lot more generation proposed to be built, you people who are faced with this mantle line have one line across your property, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, we're looking at uh, 150, 200 megawatts of power being exported, I think, on that line. Anyone know? Is it 300. They're parking 7,000 megawatts just north of you. How many lines do you think you're going to build? Think about that. That's an incredible number. And that's not the end. They're talking about a province here. They're proposing north of 50,000 megawatts of power being able to be generated out of this province. We can only consume 6,500 on average. We're lucky, 40 below zero, we can peak to 9,000 something. Where do you think the rest of that power is going? 
If you're on that mantle line, I have a real problem with the mantle. Is anyone here from the mantle company? Good, because I think you're a bunch of criminals. No, I'm serious. This has, this has nothing to do with power lines. This has everything to do with conflict of indi you know, individual rights. You want a group of people to go start a business? Knock yourself out. Go start your business. Good luck. Take your risk. Suffer the consequences. Enjoy the profits. But don't tell me i got to do business with you. That's contrary to our free market system. They're using the power of the state, the power of the province, to behave like a utility to take land against the will of people, saying you have no choice. You've got to lease me your land. That's fundamental. You're not a utility. Take a hike. Here's my price. Or I don't.